Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you? It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, let's go. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we are in our journey through this letter from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy as he is looking to bring order and God's grace to this church and the city of Ephesus that Paul planted several years before and he leaves Ephesus which is in modern day western Turkey. He leaves this young man to continue the work of establishing this Bible-believing, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, on-mission church in this city to be a display of the gospel to an onlooking world. So as is our practice, if you're newer, we for the vast majority of Sundays just work our way through books of the Bible, and we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This letter, really this is, we call it a book, but it's really a letter, is, is in a sense a kind of instruction manual to a young pastor on what the local church should look like. And the point of this older man, Paul's letter to this younger man, Timothy, is not so much just for the functioning of the church, but so that through the life of the local church, as they gather and as they live as a kind of city set on a hill, that they together would be collectively a display of the greatest message in the world, the message of the gospel, that God, in his mercy, as we've prayed already and read and sung, that God the Father would send his son, Jesus, the perfect God-man, to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, to lay down his life, to bear the punishment that should have been ours, and rise again in victory over it, calling all people everywhere to repent and believe in him. That is the only way back to the Father. And the church exists to be a group of people, a group of pardoned rebels who live together in a way not for themselves but to display this message. And Paul is writing to this local church about how they should do life together, not merely for themselves, so that collectively they might be a kind of display to an onlooking world of this this all-important news called the gospel. So we find ourselves in 1 Timothy 3, and last week we looked at the first seven verses that spoke about the role of elders or pastors, leaders in the local church. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11, and this idea of the role of deacons, which is a word that means servants. So in just a moment I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. But before I do that, let me just... uh, acknowledge that many of us in this room may have had bad relationships or bad experiences with previous churches and even authority structures or leadership in churches. And sometimes bad experiences can just so imprint our souls that it really taints the way we interact with that thing again for the rest of our lives. For example, I have only had half of a can of root beer in my entire life. Because in the late 1970s, when I was about seven or eight years old, I took a road trip with my grandmother. And I grew up on the Mexican border in one of the hottest places in the United States, inland of San Diego, in a little city called El Centro, California, which is just basically a dust bowl. It's a desert. There's nothing out there except 
coyotes and chain link fences and taco stands. And the average temperature in the summer is about 120 degrees. And my parents were away one weekend, and so my grandmother was babysitting my brother and I, and she was borrowing my parents' station wagon. The kind, it was green with that wood paneling on the side. Remember those? And my grandmother didn't just smoke. She smoked like a chimney. I mean, we're talking three packs a day, right? And... Because it was 120 degrees outside, when she was driving us around, you know, she didn't want the windows rolled down because it was so stinking hot outside. And so she would smoke this cigarette, and she'd have the windows rolled up so she could blast the air conditioning in the car. Well, we stopped by some little taco stand to get lunch, and I got a root beer with my tacos. Jumped back in the car, grandma's puffing away on her little smoke stick. It's 120 degrees outside, and she's got the windows rolled up, and it is a little smoke chamber in there. And I got sick to my stomach, and halfway through my first and only can of root beer, I didn't just throw up. I mean, it was one of, it's like we're, forgive me, it was kind of coming through my nose, sort of a throw up, right? The thought, that experience was so bad, the thought of the taste of root beer in my mouth, some almost 40 years later, turns my stomach. <laughs> and that's how some of us feel about authority and leadership. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching this young pastor what godly authority should look like in the church. So whatever experiences we may be bringing to the table, we're going to talk today about what a deacon is, especially in contrast to what an elder is. And then we're going to take a little bit of a pivot, and we're going to look at really this greater idea of what it means to be a servant, because that's what this word deacon means, a servant in the local church. So verse 8 through 13, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, let me just give you an outline of where we're going to go. Four questions that I want us to consider as we work our way through this text. And then I'll pray. The first is, who are deacons? Secondly, what do deacons do? Thirdly, How does this apply to us as a church, corporately, and then even individually as Christians? And then fourthly, what is at stake? So who are deacons? What do deacons do? How does this apply to us? And what's at stake? And I've been looking forward to this. You may be thinking, oh man, this is kind of one of those, you know, vegetable sermons. It's not really a lot of red meat of gospel centrality. And so uh, this is for somebody that kind of needs to learn about this stuff. But this is kind of an autopilot Sunday for me. 
Oh no, no friends, I have been looking forward to this because I think if we can grasp a hold of some of the beautiful, truth, beautiful truths in this, in this passage, it, will, it can have the potential to cultivate uh, a, a beautiful culture in our church that I think is already developing. So let me pray. Father, as we, as we work our way through this text and consider these questions that I think arise from this text, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would conform this congregation, this group of people, this this tiny little local church into more into the image of Christ. I pray that you would make us more able to be a clear representation of the gospel as a result of our time in this passage. And I pray for my friends that are in this room who do not yet know Jesus, that by your sovereign grace, as Paul quoted from Ephesians 2 earlier, and as we have sung about together, that by your grace you might take dead hearts and make them alive, that you would make the gospel so beautiful and so irresistible and so lovely that it would overtake the heart of any unbelievers in this room and that they would be drawn by redeeming grace to your love and then that you would give them faith and repentance so they would turn from themselves and put their hope in Jesus. Or do these wonderful gracious things among us today for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so much like verses 1 through 7, when we looked last week at the qualification for elders, verses 8 through 13 is this description of the character traits of deacons. It doesn't really say, though, much about who the deacons are or what they should do in these, this little paragraph that we read. It's really just a qualification list. And as we noted last week when we were looking at elders, it's really not that noteworthy of a list. It's just a, a regular list of character traits that we really want all Christians to, to, in many ways, be pursuing. So let's look at this question then, who are deacons? And to understand this role of deacon in the church... Let's go to Acts chapter 6. In fact, we read from this last week, and I think it would bear us reading again. And it is this scene in the early church where we see the development of what is, I think, the precursor or the, the, the the forerunner of this office, this role of deacon that Paul addresses in our text that we read. And so in Acts chapter 6, the situation is, is that the church, the early church, is beginning to grow. These men, called the apostles, who were Jesus' 12 disciples, are preaching the gospel, and they have this special, one-time authority in the history of the church. These specific men, these 12 disciples who became the apostles, this word apostle means literally just sent ones or messengers, these men become commissioned by Jesus personally to start the New Testament church and to be the mouthpiece and really the hands through which the New Testament books would come. So all of the 27 books in the New Testament come either through the hands of one of the apostles or through one of their ministry associates. So one of the ways that the New Testament church knew what should be in the New Testament or complete the Bible is whether or not that book or letter came from one of the apostles. So every one of the 27 books of the New Testament either was written by an apostle 
or came through one of his ministry associates sort of having his stamp of approval on it. And so these apostles have this one-time particular authority to plant the church and be the, the commissioned by Jesus to, to really finish out God's revelation to us. And they are sort of the precursor to the pastors and elders. Now that's not to say that pastors and elders in our setting have near the authority that the apostles do. We don't. They don't. They just continue to be the mouthpieces that teach the word that the apostles wrote down. So just as a little sort of caveat here, or a little side trail, there are more, no more apostles, right? If anybody tells you that they're an apostle, um, they're not, and you, you, all of the apostles are dead, right? They're dead, and so we will meet them again someday um, after the resurrection, but they're dead. Their, body, their bodies are in the ground. They are with the Lord, just like they're... So no, don't follow any modern-day apostles, And in Acts chapter 6, the church is growing, the apostles are preaching, and a great number of people are coming to the faith, and with a great number of people gathered together, there were logistical and physical needs, and there was starting to be tension among a particular group of people, these widows, some of them who were Greek-speaking or Hellenistic widows, Hellenistic meaning influenced by Greek culture, so they were Greek-speaking widows, and then the Jewish widows, and they we're starting to think, the Greek-speaking widows were starting to think that they were getting the short end of the stick. And they weren't getting as much food, apparently, as the Jewish widows. So have you ever been, I'm sure some of you guys that have ever been in the army, you go through the chow line, you're out in the fields, you know, and you kind of, you didn't get quite as big of a scoop of potatoes as you thought you should. Well, that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 6. And so, in verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They weren't getting as much food, apparently. So you have these people who have come to faith in Jesus. You have these Jews who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And then you have these Greeks who have come to faith in Jesus and their widows are at odds with one another. And the twelve, meaning the twelve disciples or apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Not because the apostles felt that they were above serving the tables, but because if they gave their time to serving the tables, then the ministry of the word and prayer and the shepherding and the spiritual leading of the flock would Suffer, And so they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmius, Nicholas, and a proselyte, of Ant- a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And although the word deacon is not used there, this word of them being servants is, in a sense, really waiters, table waiters, servants, to care for the distribution of the food uh, became the, really the, the genesis of this idea of servants that then Timothy, that Paul then uh, elaborates on in 1 Timothy 3, which is the text that we read at the beginning. So then, deacons were merely faithful and mature lead servants. 
they were people that the apostles set aside to care for the needs of the church. Now that may contrast with the perception that you have of deacons maybe in the church that maybe some of you grew up in. You maybe think of the deacons as kind of the, the grumpy, you know, mysterious men who meet in opulent parlors in the back halls of the church late in the evenings to discuss whether or not the pastor is meeting the needs, you know, and it's kind of like this strange thing called the deacon board, which, by the way, just to not rattle your cage too much, this may blast your paradigm, is not a biblical thing. It's an American church adaption. It's, it's a strange kind of American sort of political role where the deacons meet together as a kind of Congress, like uh, the balance of power against the presidential power of the executive branch of the pastor, you know, and so there's kind of this bicameral, you know, we're going to meet together to sort of protect the church. Friends, there's nothing like that in the Bible. That's not what a deacon, oh, somebody agrees, somebody's like, yeah, man, I, somebody drank some root beer a few years ago and they had a bad experience. I'm with you, brother. Please don't throw up in the middle of the sermon if you can. That's not what deacons are. Deacons are faithful, mature lead servants who are really table waiters at this point. They're just passing out food. And then we see in 1 Timothy 3, we see this development of these characteristics that a deacon should have. And so let's note that deacons, as they are faithful, mature lead servants, note, much like the list for elders, that the accent is not on any particular giftedness or skill, but on godliness. Did you see the list there? It says that they should be dignified, not double-tongued, not drunkards, not greedy. They must be people that are mature, able to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They shouldn't be new, uh, wet behind the ears, green Christians who, who don't have any experience. They should you know, have a little grit underneath their fingernails so that uh, they, they should be tested first. Their wives or women who serve in this role should be dignified, shouldn't be slanderers, faithful, should manage. There's just a, a, a description of what it means to be a mature follower of Christ. And godliness, not giftedness, is the focus of the deacons. So then second question, what do deacons do? Well, very quickly, I think we can surmise, and I'm drawing on literature that's been written on deacons. These are not my thoughts, but uh, I think three historic uh, categories of the function of deacons in the history of the church by many faithful writers through the centuries. The first is that deacons care for the physical and logistical needs of the church, and I think that's what we see in Acts chapter 6. Deacons don't meet to deliberate to uh, kind of be a balance of power to the pastor-elder. They care for the physical and logistical needs of the church in Acts chapter 6 is literally the distribution of a fair portion of food. In the development of the New Testament church, we see writings that aren't necessarily scripture, but are descriptive historical accounts of life in the local church. And we see deacons doing things like like caring for 
uh, widows and caring for uh, the finances of the church and being involved in uh, other things like the, the fair distribution of the assets of the church and caring for the physical building of the church. These are all the types of things that deacons do. They are lead servants who help to administrate these very important physical, logistical needs of the church so that the elders, pastors, would be freed up to care for the spiritual needs of the church. And it's not like that we're pitting those two things against one another. Secondly, they seek to protect the unity of the church. Notice that in Acts chapter 6, the, this two, these two groups of widows were at odds with one another, and these two groups of people were at odds with one another, right? Because did you notice there was a complaint between the Hellenists against the Hebrews about their widows? So the, you were messing with people's mama. And nothing will cause people to get more upset with one another than if they think their mama ain't be treated, aren't, aren't treated right, right? I mean, that's when church unity is threatened. I mean, you, you, you can talk about me all you want, but if my mama ain't getting enough potatoes, we're, we're going to have problems. And it was threatening the unity of the church. So it was more than just some physical thing. What was at stake was the unity of the church and the deacons became kind of shock absorbers to protect the witness and the cohesiveness and the bond of the Holy Spirit that existed in the church. And then finally, the deacons supported by the way they cared for these physical physical and logistical needs and by the way they protected the unity of the church. Ultimately, and probably most importantly, and all of this is bound up together, they were supporting, they were paving the way, they were the means by which the elders could practice the ministry of the word and prayer. Certainly, it doesn't mean that deacons don't also pray and teach and all those type of things, but in their official role as deacons in the New Testament, They were supporting the ministry of the word so that God's people would be led by God's word. Now, how does that work out at Crosspoint here? At Crosspoint, we have four people, four men who are deacons, and they aren't a board that deliberates, but they are lead servants over particular areas of ministry that help to make the life of Crosspoint function more smoothly to serve physical needs and other aspects of ministry and administrate them so that the people are encouraged and blessed and edified and so that the pastors, elders can give themselves to spiritual teaching, preaching, praying, and counseling. So, for example, uh, we have Brandon Barnes, who is the deacon over the tech. He, anything that happens behind that a bulletproof glass shield right there is Brandon's responsibility. And it's not really bulletproof, but it should be because anytime anything goes wrong in the service, everybody kind of looks back at the guy back there, you know, like, what's going on? But they do a fantastic, Brandon does a fantastic job of scheduling volunteers and, and really helping everything that happens just as far as video, audio, projection to pave the way for the ministry of the word. Terry Cole is the deacon over ushers and the men that care for us that really wait on us to serve us, to serve communion and to help people find seats and to receive the offering and to really provide physical security and safety. That's a way of serving and and caring for the physical needs of the church. Robbie Farmer is uh, the deacon over benevolence. And so one of the things that we feel a great responsibility here is that there are people in our church that oftentimes uh, have financial difficulty and it's part of our responsibility to care for people that are in financial distress. And so Robbie Farmer, uh, along with a team of other people in the church, help to meet with people that are members of the church and even people from outside the church who may just contact us and ask us about how we might help them with maybe 
um, some sort of bill or uh, uh, financial need. And we want to consider that as a way that we can show grace and mercy, especially to those that are part of this church, but also to somebody that the Lord may be sending our way. And so Robbie, along with other folks, helps us to think about those things wisely. And then finally, Daniel Horde is our deacon over adoption and foster care. We have many families in this church. I don't know what the number is now, but there's maybe 10, 15, 20 families that have adopted children, both... uh, children from internationally and locally. There are also families in our church that are involved in fostering children. And this is a great emotional and financial toll, takes a toll on these families. And Daniel, along with a group of families who have adopted or are fostering, are a team that cares for these people and wants to facilitate and help to pave the way that we would have a culture of physical adoption here so that it would mirror and point an onlooking world to spiritual adoption in Christ and, of course, just care for orphans. And so Daniel does a great job along with a team of people. He's the deacon that leads that team. And then the life of Crosspoint over the years, I anticipate that we'll have many other areas, areas that will spring up that we say, well, we need somebody, a mature, faithful lead servant who can administrate and serve and care for this particular area of the church to help the, the physical needs, the logistical needs, the unity of the church, and support the ministry of the word. So that is what deacons do. Okay, then third question, how does this apply to us? Well, at this point, let's, let's think about this a little bit more broadly. Okay, I want us to distinguish in our minds between the office of deacon which Paul speaks about here in 1 Timothy 3, which is very necessary, which we have and practice here. And I want us to not just settle in on that because then, you know, we could just teach on that and that would be a fine thing to teach on and that would be edifying for us and we could stop there and say, boys and girls, that's what deacons are. Let's pray and go home. But this idea of deaconing as a verb is actually all throughout the New Testament. So, in one sense, what we've spoken about just for these past few minutes has been the role or office of deacon in the life of a local church. But the concept of deaconing, and this word deacon just means servant or serving, is all throughout the New Testament and in fact should be the posture of every Christian. So I want to make the argument, and I want us to pivot in a sense here to apply to us as a congregation that understanding what deacons are and in their official capacity as we've read in verses 8 through 13, if we just stop there, I think we miss the tenor and the tone of what the life of a New Testament Christian is. And so how does this apply to us? First, serving or deaconing is not merely an office, but should be the posture of every Christian. So Reynolds read from us, for us earlier from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Another way of translating the, that verse would be Jesus saying, I have not come to be deaconed, but to deacon. That word serve in Verse 45, both times, is the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This idea of servant is laced all throughout the New Testament. So Jesus calls himself a deacon. In Hebrews, we won't go there, but there's this uh, beautiful scripture about how angels are ministering spirits sent to come and help the people of God. 
that, that the word used there is that angels are deacons, they're servants. And then all throughout the New Testament, Paul and the other Bible writers are referring to Christians, regular Christians, not necessarily those that are officially recognized by the church as deacons. He calls all Christians, in one sense, deacons. In fact, look at John chapter 12, this beautiful verse in verse 26, where Jesus uses this exact same word from which we get deacon in 1 Timothy 3. And this applies to every Christian. John chapter um, 12 and verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the, fa- the Father will honor him. We could read this also, just literally, If anyone deacons me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my deacon will be also. If anyone deacons me, the Father will honor him. Now what Jesus is speaking about there is not just a particular class of people set aside for food distribution or to take care of sound and tech boards or ushers or the distribution of communion. Clearly Jesus is talking about all Christians. So it is the posture of every New Testament Christian to deacon. All of us should be, in a sense, servants, deacons. And then look at verse 13 of our text again. I want you to see this connection. And we were reading this text together as a pastor elder team when we met on Monday night, reading through this passage, thinking about the next Sunday. And after Paul gives these qualifications for what a deacon is, look at verse 13. This summary statement of the effect that deaconing should have on the hearts and minds of these particular people who are deacons. But I think clearly this would apply to all service in the local church. He says, For those who serve well as deacons or servants gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So notice the link that Paul makes there. He says that when a person serves as a deacon as somebody who cares for the church, whether officially or organically in the life of a church, they gain for themselves this great assurance, this great confidence in the faith. So I think what we can say is that, secondly how this applies to us, is that serving deepens our faith and diminishes self-absorption. The more that we are intentionally looking away from ourselves to care for other people, it serves to get our eyes off of ourselves and to care for other people so that as we live a life of deaconing, something incredible happens, almost imperceptible to us. It deepens our faith and gives us great confidence. So the less we look at ourselves, the more rooted we are in our assurance of Christ's love for us. Doesn't that seem almost paradoxical or counterintuitive? The less we consider ourselves, the more secure we become about who we are in Christ because we are caring for one another. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. When Reynolds was praying just a moment ago, he was quoting this, uh, paraphrasing it in his prayer. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul is laying out this beautiful culture, this compelling community that the local church should be. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Friends, he's writing to every Christian. Whether you've been a Christian for six days or 60 years, let this imperative press on you. Let each of you, verse 4, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is the greatest example of deaconing by caring not about his own preferences and privileges, but by divesting himself of them so that he might focus on others. And this is the posture of every New Testament Christian. But you know what? Let's just admit, thinking about others is hard because people are hard and people get on our nerves. Amen? Okay. Just to posture our heart a little bit more towards this before we look at some specific examples. I, I love this quote. I've read it several times before from Richard Sibbs, who is one of my favorite Puritans. He was an English pastor in the 1600s. And he wrote in this classic little book called The Bruised Reed. Listen to this. He says, The Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. He's talking about us. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful dispositions we must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The church, I love this sentence, the church is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So we all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. Listen, there is no shortage of people around you right now who need to be served and cared for. I know because I'm one of their pastors. All of us are smoky, offensive souls. And Paul, through the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, through John 12, that verse that we read, is encouraging us to live a life of deaconing in the local church. And when we do that, it just presents a, it just develops a a compelling community. So probably one of the questions that I, along with the other pastors, get asked more than any other when somebody new comes to the church, or maybe somebody has been here for a while and they're starting to kind of want to dive in a little bit more, is this question, how can I get more involved? Have you ever asked that question or even wondered that question right now? Maybe some of you are newer to this church and you're wondering, how can I get more involved? Well, that's a great question to ask. But I've noticed in my years of pastoring that there are, I think, some misperceptions and some things that we have to deconstruct before we can 
constructively answer that question because the challenges, some of the presuppositions that we bring to that question oftentimes in American church culture hinder our ability to faithfully and biblically answer it. So one of the challenges to that question, how can I get involved, is oftentimes we're thinking about specific tasks. We're thinking maybe in line of what Paul is speaking about in Acts, I mean in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 that we just read about, these, this specific role of deacon. But the problem is, if we just made everybody sort of an official person who's involved in some particular official, centralized, organized ministry of the church, two things would happen. Either we'd run out of tasks, because there's not enough stuff, right? We're not one of those churches that just wants to make you busy all the time, coming up here for this, that, and the other. I think that can be an unhealthy trajectory. And so very quickly, we will run out of tasks for you to get involved in. And secondly, if we came up with enough tasks, centralized things for people to do, we would be busy doing a bunch of church stuff that we... We wouldn't have any time left in the day to actually be Christians out in the community to an onlooking world, right? And so we have to go deeper than just what can I physically do or what job can I have on a Sunday morning or maybe at a Wednesday night teaching or something like that. And even if there were enough tasks, I think it would potentially send us down the wrong trajectory of finding our security in some physical task or something that we can check off and say we did, rather than what I think is the spirit of the New Testament that calls us into a kind of organic, Christ-like, head on our swivel, thinking about other people more than we think about ourselves. Many of us, in fact, I think most Americans, and I think if you are not American, if you did not grow up in America in a strange sort of way, I think you are at an advantage over uh, American Christians. Many of us have been conditioned to be passive consumers. And we walk into a, a church or a group of people or whatever it is, a store, a setting, a school, a whatever, and subconsciously we instinctively are wondering, what can this place do for me to help me do whatever better? And when we bring that question as the only question that we're asking to life in the local church, it hinders our ability to be what Jesus has called us to be, to be deacons, all of us, in the life of a local church. So some practical ways to serve. And what I, what I was so encouraged about as I was thinking about this week, I see so much of this in the life of our church. There's just so much deaconing going on in our church, but we have new people all the time coming in. Do you realize that last member meeting, we uh, had about 50 people that we removed from membership that the United States Army decided to send to some other post. I've asked some of the generals at Fort Benning if they would just let all the people that are members of Crosspoint stay at Fort Benning forever for the rest of their Army career. They strangely declined. So I didn't, I'm joking, obviously. They, <laughs> I wouldn't ask a general that because I know where he would tell me to stick it. But anyway, we just lost 50, but it's gone. And then we had about 30 or 40 more people join the church. So there's, there's always a revolving door of people coming in and out of this church. And so although there's much deaconing going on in this church, I think we as leaders need to craft practical ways for all of us to think about creating this culture of deaconing. So how can you practically deacon? as a New Testament believer in Jesus? Well, the first thing that you can do is that you can just make a decision to come to the next membership class and consider joining a church, joining this local church. 
If you're not a member of a local church and you are a believer in Jesus, I'm speaking to Christians now, if you're a seeker, if you're here not knowing exactly where you stand with the Lord, you're just investigating Christianity, doodle on your sheet for a second. Actually, this is good for you to know when I think the Holy Spirit's drawing you and this will eventually apply to you. So listen anyway, but if I'm speaking to people that are trusting in Christ right now, if you are a Christian and you are not a member of a local church, I think that there's much of the Bible that you will have great difficulty obeying. Especially when it comes to elders and deacons. Who, who are the elders that you submit to? There are like 27 passages in the New Testament that have this phrase, one another. And most of them are in the context of Paul's letters to local churches, whether it's the church at Philippi or the church at Colossae or the church at Ephesus or the church at Thessalonica. And it is Paul saying, you local church, treat one another this way. And at every one of our member meetings, we have six of them a year for members of this church, and we gather together, and we read this thing called our One Another Covenant, where we commit to live together and treat one another, meaning other Christians that we have a special relationship with. So in one sense, a a New Testament Christian should care for all peoples of the earth, right? All people, whoever they are, should want to care and love them. And of course, a New Testament Christian should care for other Christians in their community, But I think clearly, friends, and we don't have the time to work through all the scriptures that imply this clearly, clearly I think there is this sense in the New Testament that Christians gathered together in a local church have a special obligation to love one another in a way, not, hear me on this, not so that we would be an inclusive, drawn-in, sort of four-wall, don't-care-about-outside-community people who prefer one another, but rather, by the way, we exercise watchfulness over one another. And by the way, we care specifically for one another as faithful members of a local church. God uses the aroma that comes from the way we care for one another to be a kind of gospel preaching to an onlooking world who looks at that group of people who care for the needs of one another, who do it winsomely and graciously, not so that they don't because they don't care about the world around them, but precisely because they do care about the world around them and they want to give a good picture of what it means to follow Jesus together as a family. And you can only do that if you, nowhere in the Bible do you see this word that says join a local church, but you can't, I think it's implied all throughout the Bible. How can you know who your one another's are? How can you submit to leaders if they don't know who you are? So I think you should think about joining a local church church. And then when you join that local church, there are some formal organized ways for you to serve it. I mean, one way, we don't have, you can't have six or seven hundred ushers every Sunday. You can't have six or seven hundred guitar players every Sunday. We can't have a few more folks serving in the children's ministry, though, I'll tell you that much. Do you know that every Sunday there are about 200 children, 200 children that are not in this room, that are in that hallway or in that big room? And I know that some of you are allergic to kids. I know that some of you have done your duty, so to speak. I know that some of you are so glad that your children are gone. And I know some of you are young and don't have children. One way to deacon, to look not out for your own interests, because really it's not about you cruising as an empty nester. And it's not about you as a young soldier or a young gal, single, that's a music student at CSU, just not serving in that way yet because you need to 
not look out for your own interests, but to look out for the interests of others. And something strange happens. Remember what Paul said in verse 13? He said that when you deacon, when you serve in this way, it gives you great assurance. Because in that moment, you're caring more about other people and bearing and absorbing the shock of a fussy, rambunctious three-year-old than you are about accumulating spiritual pep for yourself on that Sunday. And that will give you, think about what Paul says here, it gives you great assurance. Do you see that? Being on this trajectory of accumulating stuff for yourself even if it's good stuff, can actually, strangely, paradoxically, send you towards unhealth because your trajectory is selfish. But if occasionally you hit the pause button on your accumulation of your own stuff so that you might think about how other people might be served, it has this effect of making you more mature. Sila. Oh, that was a good point. All right, I enjoyed it. Another practical way you can serve is when you become a member of the church, you can get this member directory and pray through the list every week as pastors we pray. So there's 500 and something members. There's far more people in this room, but there's 500 and something members in this book, and we pray through not the whole book. And we look at these people, and every member in this church can deacon by praying through a few pages of this book every week. And so I'm just even looking at this list, and I'm, I'm seeing people. that have children that are away from the Lord, that are enduring a difficult pregnancy. I see right here, I know that couple's marriage is in trouble. And, and one of the greatest ways that we can deacon is we can all sort of become kind of accountable. We can become connected to one another. We can become responsible for one another. By praying for one another. Maybe an older Christian can go to the membership of the resource room, which, by the way, if you haven't seen the new resource room, Will Hawk did, like, and Stephen Knowles and the girls up front refit that room, and it looks spectacular. And it's full of good books. There's a book in there called Discipling, a short little book that you could read in an afternoon, How to Help Others Following Jesus. Maybe a way that you can deacon is you've been a Christian for more than a couple years and you need, to take, you need to get a little copy of this book and you need to read it and you need to just heed the advice in this book. We've been reading this book together in our staff meetings and just being encouraged by it. You need to read this book and think about how you might practically, organically, without anybody crafting a program for you, think about how you can care for and you can take any other book virtually any other book in that resource room, plus many other good resources, and just take another young Christian and encourage them and disciple them. And you just need to live a life of deaconing through discipling and caring for other people in one-on-one. And so you meet a young man or a young woman or a young couple, and you say, hey, let's get together for three months, and let's just go through a book in the resource center, and we're going to have a start and a stop, and we're just gonna, I'm just going to share with you uh, my life, and we're going to get together, and that person and you will benefit. You will both be more like Jesus as you prefer one another rather than yourselves, and you will be a deacon. Just some practical ways. Another, just very practical way, come a little, come a little early to our gathered worship and leave a little late. Come a little early, leave a little late. Don't dash in at 1045 and dash out when I start to pray. It's bad for your soul. It's bad for your soul. And when you come a little early and you leave a little late, 
Look for people to greet and encourage. Now, I realize that you may be an introvert, and right now your heart is starting to pound a little bit. You're getting nervous, and you're like, I knew it. I knew it was going to go there. (laughs) Friends, if you speak English and you understand English, which I think is most of you in here, you can have a meaningful conversation with another person in this room in a way that prefers them and serves them. And if you're an introvert, if there's one thing you know how to do, it's how to spot other introverts. And so you make a beeline to another introvert and you walk up to that person and you say, isn't this super uncomfortable? Let's go hide in the corner together. And then go to the corner and ask them, hey man, is this your first time at Crosspoint? No, I've been a member for four years. Me too. Oh my God. (laughs) I sit over there. I say, oh, praise God. Now we know each other. (laughs) And you say, hey man, let's go walk to the resource room together. Let's just go get, let's pick out a book. How can I pray for you this week? Take out something to write down and pray for it. Friends, those are tiny little things. (laughs) But when a group of people do those tiny little things, friends, beautiful things start to happen. And they already are happening here. I mean, it happens every Sunday. The train is rolling through this building. That deaconing train rolls through this building every Sunday. If you're not on it, jump on it and stay on it and deacon. So what's at stake? Final question. Oh, friends, what's at stake? And by the way, before I do that, I have two copies of this book, Discipling. And I'm going to be by a little table right outside the resource room at the end of this service. And the first two people who come up and want a free copy of this book, Discipling, can get it. The rest of you, there's more in there that you've got to pay for. It. All right, ain't that expensive. What's at stake? Oh, friends, like we said last week, what's at stake is clearly representing Jesus. Clearly representing Jesus. Reynolds read it for us from Mark 10. I read it again, Mark 10, verse 45. Jesus says, I have come not to be served, but to serve. The ultimate example of deaconing is Jesus. And Jesus deacons the gospel to us. He serves the gospel to us. And and here is the news that by the way we treat one another, everybody needs to hear. And it's the good news of what God has done in Christ for through his son. So the friends, the, the most important news that every person in this room needs to hear, needs to hear again or hear for the first time, is that God is holy and righteous. He has created everything for his glory. And he created mankind, us, Adam and Eve, our first parents, to be his image bearers. But they have rebelled against him and they were separated from his presence. That's what sin does. To be separated from God who is life is to spiritually die. And now everybody that is a child of Adam and Eve, which is all of us, are born sinners. 
<laughs> I've said this often, it's been a while. My children look like me and my wife. They have our DNA. My oldest son could grow a mustache in the fourth grade because he sucked every bit of Italian DNA, hairy Mediterranean gene out of me. He, <laughs> he looked like Arthur Fonzarelli from Happy Days in the fourth grade. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> because he has my DNA. We all have our first parents, Adam and Eve's spiritual DNA. We are by nature sinners, separated from God. And to be a sinner is to not just be less than optimal or minimized or diminished in some way. The Bible says that it means that we are dead. In fact, Ephesians 2 says that it causes us to be, it puts us in a position where we are objects of God's wrath. That's how we all begin. But Jesus deaconed. Jesus served. And the way Jesus served is Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came, became a man, laid down his perfect law-abiding obedient life on the cross to be the sacrifice and the substitute for all of our sin. And he bore the wrath of a holy God on the cross. And because he's not just a perfect man, but because he is the infinitely holy, eternal son of God, his holiness and righteousness was more than enough to atone and satisfy and extinguish and remove all the sin of all the people whoever would turn and trust in him. And then he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And because he is alive and has defeated death and sin on the cross, he has the keys, the keys to life, and now can give life. And when Jesus calls somebody, he gives them the very thing that he, re- he requires of them, which is faith and repentance. He gives them a new heart so that they might turn from their sin and put their hope in him. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And in fact, if you have never done that, that That is what you must do. And this church exists not for itself. Every Christian in this room who is already trusting in that good news exists to be a kind of means so that you, dear friend, would see that good news, turn from your sin, and put your hope in Jesus, not just merely so that you would have your eternal destination secured, but so that you too now would turn from serving yourself and turn to serving God, which is far more pleasurable than serving yourself. And do it with a bunch of other smoky, offensive souls. Because this is a common hospital where everybody is sick in some way or another. And we need a church full of nurses, a church full of deacons, who are rolling wheelchairs to the great physician by the way we live together. <laughs> if you, if you uh, don't know that message, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time, I'd love for you to come speak to one of the pastors or somebody that you know to be a Christian at the end of the service in just a moment. And before you leave this building today, stop by that table that I'll be out in front of the resource room. And I want to give you a book called Who is Jesus? And I think it'll explain more about what it means to follow Christ and what the gospel is. I want to give it to you. We're going to have that table open every Sunday with that book for you to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus so that you too can follow the great deacon 
and be one who serves others and not yourself by putting your faith and hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, fill this church with deacons, with servants, with people who, like Jesus, model the great news of the gospel, who lay down their lives for others. And Lord, purge us of that American self-absorbed, selfish instinct that thinks that somehow this is drudgery. No, this is where actual true joy is found. In fact, Paul states it. He says that people who serve in this way gain a good standing and great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing more joyful and sweeter and more secure than knowing that we, as your servants, are giving our lives away in service of the King who is coming again. Lord, make us a church like that more and more. We already are. Make us more like that, I pray. And draw any unbelievers that are in this room today to yourself so that they would turn from serving themselves and they would turn in faith and repentance and be saved so that they might serve you, the one true God. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.